1: $25 each.
2: Visit LiveNation.com slash
0: concertweek to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash concertweek to buy
1: now. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt.
1: My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. And today, candidly, we are yet again on the edge of the real, but uh, not not perhaps in a way we have been in the past. In our show, we've often swam into the deep philosophical waters, contemplating the nature of perception and reality. It's a dilemma that only grows more important as time goes on. If you're like most people on the planet, you are already familiar with today's topic, reality television. Before we begin, we need to put a disclaimer at the top. Matt, Noel, Mission Control, and myself have all had some personal experience with reality television, so we are entering today's exploration with a bit of unavoidable bias. As always, we're going to do our best to stay as objective as possible. But in the interest of transparency, we would like to give you a few war stories from our at times surreal experiences with this phenomenon. It's sometimes called a genre, sometimes it's called a travesty, and sometimes it's called an art form. So uh, off air, you know, we we hang out – We hang out when this show is not rolling or we're not recording, uh, and off air over the years, I think we've all shared some of these stories with each other. But uh, as we were gearing up for this episode, we were reminded of them again. So, Noel, Matt, Mission Control—I mean, we've all got—we've all got some weird ones here. What, uh, what, what are what are our personal experiences with reality TV?
0: Well, well, unbeknownst to you guys or anybody else, um, I am actually the uh, the sort of abandoned Kardashian uh, son. I am the, the black sheep of the Kardashian family. No one talks about me. I had to change my name. You're Um, leaking this right now. uh, Yeah, this is an exclusive. No, I'm obviously, I'm obviously kidding. I would probably be assassinated if that were the truth, and I dropped that on the show. It's funny you say. uh, You you mentioned this, Ben. Um, Paul and I, actually, in a previous life, pre-podcast, pre-pandemic, worked together on a pilot for a reality show. Um, I don't think I should drop the name because I don't know if it's still a a, a working affair potentially being pitched. It was a long time ago, and I haven't seen the show come into existence. No, you know what? I got to do it. I got it because the title was so great. It was called The Underground Runway, which I I felt was problematic for several reasons. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just because the implication makes you think of the Underground Railroad, obviously, uh, which is not connected to frivolous fashion concerns and kind of real housewives esque uh, drama, which is what this show very much was. It was these women, Buckhead type Atlanta women, um, starting a fashion brand in like a basement room of this very affluent uh, Buckhead esque. Let's say Buckhead, like people know what that is. Buckhead is sort of like the bougie. Uh, brunch part of Atlanta. And, um, they manufactured a whole lot of drama. There was one part where, like, they had a package sent to the house for this one particularly boisterous, uh, European woman, um, was sent, like, a, like a, a box of sex toys, I wanna say. And her boyfriend kept sending these inappropriate gifts to the house and disrupting the flow of their, you know, startup. brainstorming sessions and it was all totally manufactured. And even in like the standups, that was the part that I was the most uh, kind of intrigued by. They're all Frankenbited, which is a term maybe people in the media don't know, but it's where you just take words and cut them up and put them in an order to make it sound like somebody said something they didn't say. Um, and the director is literally, they're feeding them, telling them what to say to push the drama and make it as like salacious as possible. And it's, it was a hoot. I was only doing it for one day, but it taught, taught me everything I needed to know about the world of reality television.
2: <laughs> That's amazing.
0: Wow. I, I didn't have
2: anything like that happen. I was a part of a cooking show pilot one time, but I, and I guess a cooking show in a way is unscripted. There's probably an outline. There was, at least in the version that we attempted, uh, but it was just trying to get as much coverage as you possibly could with as many cameras as you could, and then the whole thing the whole story and everything happens later basically that was my experience um that particular one involved the dungeon family from atlanta and it never saw the light of day sadly
1: yes yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were probably just intimidated by having you you know by having you on set with them you know oh uh, i'm
2: sure it was all yeah me i'm sure and, and casey <laughs> and tyler and chandler
1: <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, that's right. I forgot those guys were involved as well uh yes, so Matt, you and I have had uh, a very strange experience. We flew to l a years years and years ago to uh make a pilot uh make a pilot sizzle reel, which is a very common thing with production companies they'll they'll make uh almost on spec a uh, a, a a fake trailer. For a show that doesn't yet exist, they'll show the trailer to a network and say, wouldn't this be cool if this was mm-hmm. a trailer for a real show? Uh, and our experience <laughs> there was uh, – I, I, I had a fun time, but I think they were irritated with us because um, we, we – Had integrity? Out, yeah. We <laughs> flat out refused to play ball. Uh they we can talk about this now without naming too many specifics yeah, yeah. Uh, so so we <laughs> get contacted uh, I think I get contacted as an individual we get contacted as a show uh, on a, on a not infrequent basis uh, with people who want to pitch us ideas for things and we were asked to work on a uh, essentially a treasure hunting show, an investigative, treasure hunting docu series kind of thing uh, they found out that I am a Melungeon and that's a a very small tri-racial isolate population it's called here in the. US and they wanted us to act as if uh some things that were legends were absolutely true and then they or kept at least that-
2: we believe they were absolutely true and we're going to find them
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so they wanted us to pretend some things were true that Matt and I knew not to be true. They did want us to, you know, frank and bite or get some takes. And they were very nice people. Um, But I think they were a little irritated with us when both Matt and I separately and together would just put our foot down and say, "Ah, I won't say that. Because it is it is untrue and it's misleading, and then in a different life before. Um, wait, wait, uh, hold on. Yeah, yeah.
2: Do you remember being out in the dry, uh, just hills somewhere out there? I, I forget exactly where it was, but some somewhere out there near LA with uh, shovels. And other, like, old tools that they made us carry and walk around for a long time while they shot video of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're wildfire country, yes. Didn't they and, try
0: to make you wear, like, a Indiana Jones-esque explorer, like, adventurer outfits or something? Did I make that part up? Or I seem to remember that from the I story. wish. No? Okay, I made that up in my I, mind.
1: Well, Sorry. I have some... Stuff from when I was living in in uh more on the road situations that I wore there it was it was just yeah it was just very strange and it was not uh, us <laughs> yeah it wasn't really us and uh and then previously before falling into this podcasting thing I had been cast in several things many of which didn't come to fruition because you know in the world of television. 98% of the stuff that gets pitched, nothing ever comes of it. Uh, and so we we have all had uh, a little bit of uh, experience in this world on the production end, on the possible hosting or quote-unquote talent end. But as you can tell from the stories you've heard from the three of us just now, uh, there is more to reality TV than what you see on the screen. And the experience people have during production is very different uh, from the experience you as a viewer have when you see the end result. So today's question is, what is the reality behind reality television? Here are the facts.
2: When you think about reality TV, it it sounds a bit strange, and I remember it feeling strange when it was first really spoke about in that way because it's technically a genre of television Um, a lot of times it's known as unscripted or non scripted television it's usually starring relatively unknown people or at least non actors right that's I think that's probably the most important thing they're non professional actors or sometimes they are professional actors they're just posing as a regular old person uh, not an actor You'll see that a lot. We'll, maybe we'll talk about it later, but you see that a lot in competition shows. You get working or actors who need work who go on them.
1: Oh, I learned a Is cool, cool portmanteau. portmanteau. No, no, oh, I learned okay. a cool portmanteau for this one. Uh, Mactors, model slash actors.
2: Oh, wow. That's great. Oh, yeah. And you can totally see that on a, on a lot of reality television. People who look entirely just too perfect to be running around and doing whatever wacky thing the the show is about, <laughs> um, but but the, the whole point is you you don't have a script. You put these non actors into basically real life situations or larger than real life situations, and there's nothing to do really besides shoot a bunch of video of these people doing the stuff, <laughs> whatever it is.
1: And and then you'll you this is where you get to see uh, a lot of setups. Because there's always a little bit of exposition, right, to explain the um, the rules of this particular take on reality. My favorites are always the the house hunter subgenres, where there's a couple that's like. Uh, you know, uh, Bill, Bill collects uh, vintage condoms, and Julie is a spiritual guide for corgis. They want a house with four jacuzzis and a helicopter landing pad. They need it by Tuesday. Their budget is $12. Oh, <laughs> yeah. and- And uh, and I'm I'm exaggerating a little, but maybe not as much as uh, as I'd wish. So, of
2: course, of course, they're the most picky people with twelve dollars you've ever seen. (laughs) Yes,
1: but but it's like
0: it's. I think it's it's meant to be aspirational, where it's like I too could have a multi million dollar fixer upper in San Francisco. You know, me with my meager podcast salary. You know, it's, it's what keeps people on the hook because it doesn't make them feel like there's, I think there's different like categories of reality show. There's the ones that are meant to be exclusive and be like a, a look in to a world you could never possibly be a part of. And then there's ones like those that are aspirational and they're meant to be like, oh, I, that could be me. I could do that. I could learn how to grout a bathtub or whatever it is. You know, uh, it's it's interesting. All these shows, they fall into buckets, but at the end of the day, they're all about keeping you you know with your eyes glued to the show. We're going to talk about that, right? What it means,
2: like the reality that is portrayed right. to us. What does that mean? What are they telling us?
1: Yeah, yeah, because so reality TV is a genre and we want to be fair to it today, so I'm I'm not trying to put my thumb on the scales here when I say the Term reality TV is a group term, kind of like the term cancer is a group term. It describes a lot of very different things with, uh, you know, a a core, a kind of spinal column of commonalities. Once upon a time, you know, uh, we would consider news programs or interviews or talk shows to be reality TV or uh, follow-alongs for law enforcement or medical professionals or even live quiz shows, like, of course, the quiz show. Uh, So now, as in 2020, we're at a place where reality TV... As the concept has evolved, and the phrase means the specific groupings of shows. And there are so many subgenres, transactional shows like Storage Wars, Pawn Stars, documentary approaches of... Being diplomatic here, varying credibility, makeover shows, right? Let us make you look appropriate, right? Let us (laughs) – That's. it's a dangerous aspiration. Uh, And then shows where contestants ostensibly search for romance.
2: Or or specifically competition shows like uh, cooking shows uh, and a lot of these – what is the – What's the Ninja Warrior? One? Ultimate, that Ninja, one? Ultimate Ninja, Ultimate
0: yeah. Ninja Warrior. I was about to say, yeah, like absolutely. It's it's basically grown-up Double Dare, you know, with much higher stakes. You guys remember Double Dare? Nickelodeon had a lot of these back in the day. I mean, you're right, Ben. Game shows do theoretically fall into that category uh, in an interesting way. But then there was that whole quiz show scandal that showed even those types of shows lack credibility. That or was like could. in the or could, could. It, yeah, but it was a big deal. It was a huge kerfuffle. There's a film about it. Uh, 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 with, what's his face, Sam Rockwell um, where it talks about that whole thing. It's also that he was like a secret spy and there's all. it's a really fast, what's it was called Portrait of a Dangerous Mind, I think is what it's called, or something along those lines. But yeah, it was essentially they were rigging it so that people would stay engaged and, and you'd root for the, the they, they they would basically like identify, this is the contestant that everybody likes, this is the one we want to do well, these are the ones we want to eliminate, it has nothing to do with their actual intellect, it has to do with what kind of, you know, cure territorial, you know, kind of stable of humans they want to push forth that people can most identify with.
1: Yeah. And that's why there are, um, at least in the U.S., there are federal laws regarding how a competition has to be carried out. But there are a lot of loopholes in that. You know what I mean? Uh, And you can, that's why you'll see a lot of tiered competitions. There are multiple episodes, right, of the same competition. And so you can see the producers or showrunners uh, tilting things in favor of one person or another based on their ratings, right, or based on audience response. But you might also see something like a snapshot of life of people with a very specific job. Truckers driving across roads made of ice in the far north. Uh, I'd say it's also I'd say it's also common to see uh, wealthy vapid people try and fail to do anything worthwhile uh, <laughs> or of interest. Uh, but you know, that's Jesus. like interest is in the eye of the beholder. and again, you know i I'm not saying. I'm not saying these people are vapid. I'm saying they are portrayed as being vapid by the producers. Someone mm-hmm. is telling you or you know, steering you toward what you can see. And you'll see people vying for a specific prize, a music deal, a million dollars, weight loss, love it or hate it, this is a massive genre and it's older than a lot of us in the audience today probably think. Like, you think Big Brother, or you think uh, the real world and Puck and everything. But (laughs) the the truth is something like this genre has been around since the earliest days of television. We have to remember, when television came out, when it started rolling out, it was much more experimental. People weren't sure what would work, kind of the way that uh, podcasts were uh, several years ago. Uh, This, like... There's this show in 1945 called Queen for a Day. Queen for a Day, and you can you can find some clips online about this. Queen for a Day would have various contestants come on the show and explain their plights, often in a very tearful way, to an audience. And there would be an applause-meter. And if this person's tale of woe and tribulation connected most with the audience, measured by applause, then they would be given, like, they would sit on a throne, they would get some, you know, they would get some, uh, like, costumery that looked like royalty, they would get a dozen roses, and then they would get uh, a list of prizes. This show was tremendously popular. There was another show called Candid Camera. Well, I remember that. Uh, the guy who made Candid Camera also had a show uh, in the days of radio called Candid Microphone. And that's where, like, that genre is, I, I think a lot of us in the West are familiar with it. People got pranked, and then they would learn later that they were being filmed by hidden cameras. Like, I I, I think most of us, probably, in 2020, have not seen, actually seen an episode of Candid Camera, but it's... it's uh It is part of our zeitgeist now. Smile, you're on K at the camera, right?
2: Yeah. Well, now that everyone has a camera, it's happening all the time without our knowledge.
1: (laughs) And that show came out in 1948, you know. So there were other predecessors that were more serious in tone, that were a little bit more like what – we might call a PBS documentary. There's one that's of continuing relevance today uh, called 7-Up. Do you guys guys remember hearing about that?
2: Yes. 7-Up was a television show in 1964 that got together a group of kids who were all aged seven and conducted interviews with them. And then every following seven years, they would interview them again. So in chunks of seven years, just to see how... All of these people are growing up. What are their aspirations at 7? How did it play out when they were 14? Probably not so great. That's middle school. Mm, nobody likes that.
1: <laughs> and then, uh, but then it continued on. And the most recent installment actually came out in 2019, just last year. It's called 63 Up. Wow. Yep. It, it It's interesting because it, it began with, uh, it, and I think uh, this would be of interest, to you as well, Mission Control. It it began without really a plot, you know, or the constraints that are familiar in today's reality TV shows. They the documentary style, they were talking to these people about their lives, and they kind of found the themes and the narration and the arc as these people aged.
0: Yeah, and and that's you know, that's the true mark of a good documentary. You kind of go in maybe with a little bit of understanding of what you're going to cover. And then if you do it for a long enough period, the story kind of reveals itself. I think the best documentary is often like the, the filmmakers go in maybe with one idea of what they're going to get, and then it takes some interesting turn. But the only way you can do that is by covering a topic for a very, very long time and being able to kind of roll with the punches as things change, as parts of the stories develop in ways you hadn't expected. So these seven up docs really are documentary. Like, you know, very well thought out, very well produced documentary style filmmaking, as opposed to more of what we're going to talk about today, which are which are very much uh, the antithesis of that.
1: So fast forward 1965. ABC creates a show called The American Sportsman. This show, uh, this show introduces celebrity. Kind of like for its own sake, like here are famous people. Uh, with which you're already familiar, uh, but they're maybe not necessarily doing the stuff they're famous for. Instead, they and family members and maybe friends are doing uh, outdoor activities. They're driving race cars, you know. They're they're hunting, etc. The action and the dialogue, as a result of this, was unscripted. Uh, the The only scripted stuff would be VO narration. VO meaning voiceover and. This is often today considered the first modern reality show. But again, for a lot of us listening today, the paradigm shift for reality TV begins with shows like The Real World, which premiered in 1992. Uh, Strangers are selected, not, not famous people, maybe people who aspire to be famous. Uh, these people anyway, they're selected based on what the showrunners see as their potential for discord and uh, and then they are put together in a shared living space. and what happens when people stop being polite and start being real? right mm, This is something yes. that MTV spun out in multiple spin-offs and spin-offs. And did you guys
0: th- watch this when you were when you were younger? I did. No. You did I not. Did. Okay, I, I yeah, I Ben did not. Uh, Matt did. I definitely did. I I don't think the earliest one was, I believe, San Francisco, maybe, or was it London? I don't recall. But I definitely remember Puck. Puck was he was such a jerk. And then there was a there was one particular season where there was like this kind of goth metal guy. It was in London, and he like sent his girlfriend a pig's heart uh, with a nail through it in a box, and it was so like emo, and I loved it. I was whatever his name was. He had like facial piercings, that's all I remember, but that was a leap forward because it really did feel like, oh my God, I'm a fly on the wall watching these people's lives unfold very organically with no uh, input from producers, surely,
1: right? Right.
2: Yeah, and certainly not cameras everywhere as you're trying to have an actual interaction with someone.
1: And they're certainly not being plied with alcohol or other intoxicants, right? And God forbid there be a second take of something. Anyhow, yes, you guys are right. The, from there, the genre was very much off to the races. Now we have so many sub genres of what is called reality TV. There are spin offs of spin offs of spin offs, just like the heyday of sitcoms. The trend is, does not seem set to die down anytime soon. As a matter of fact, if anything it can the, the trend continues it escalates in 2015 alone there were hundreds and hundreds of reality tv shows on primetime cable 83% more than scripted shows crucially That number is not uh, the the entire snapshot because that only accounts for series that aired during primetime and on cable. So we're not counting broadcast network reality shows like American Idol or Survivor or all the documentary programs on PBS. Once again, thank you, PBS, for being there. (laughs) It's a big proponent of PBS. If you have cable in 2020... And, you know, a lot of us don't. A lot of us are cord cutters. But if you do have cable and you're near a television, odds are that if you turn it on right now and you just scroll through the channels, you will find inevitably some sort of thing that could be called unscripted or reality TV. It's here to stay. And despite what often seems to be its innocuous nature, it shouldn't surprise anybody to know that reality TV is enormously controversial. Fans and critics of the shows in this genre will readily admit it is not as real as it is often made to seem. Spoiler, that is not the big plot twist for today's episode. Uh, audience interest may also not be the driving factor in the boom. In fact, some, some networks may be uh, pushing programming that audiences don't particularly want. And according to some, reality television may be dangerous. What are we talking about? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor.
3: I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
1: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the
0: heart of it all.
2: Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel.
1: Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI.
0: There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better.
2: In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces.
1: So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app,
0: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: here's where it gets crazy all right first things first and long time listeners i i hope you know this would not be our only twist for the episode there's several crazy things but yes i i don't know if we're in a bubble Matt, Noel, but I feel like everybody knows reality TV is much less real than it purports to be, right? Like that's not a classified document or anything.
0: Yeah, it's like wrestling, you know, I mean, maybe there's that one poor little kid who's going to have his his mind blown when he realizes that uh, wrestling is, is not real. Hopefully I'm not doing that to you, poor little kid right now. But same with reality TV. I mean, like, I think it's pretty much not even an open secret because you can't even say it's a secret, but it's not like people come right out and say it. But everyone kind of knows there's been plenty of exposes. There's a really great Adam ruins everything about it that does a really good job of demystifying all of some of the tactics and specific production techniques that go into the making of a reality show. Some of which, you know, I talked about at the beginning of the show. But, yeah, it's, it's very much a known thing. And it doesn't the interesting thing about it is it doesn't really affect your enjoyment of it or it doesn't seem to have caused it to wane in
1: popularity, I think, is what I'm getting at. Same with wrestling and kayfabe.
0: Exactly.
2: And it really is the invisible hand of storytelling that we're going to talk about the how the editors have a lot of control over that in, in this world. One thing we didn't mention earlier was just the number of streaming service only reality shows because those things are just flooded with all of those shows or types of the shows that we mentioned at the top of this show.
1: I'm, I'm looking over and writing a note map because this is excellent foreshadowing. I have a I have a thing about this. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. This is totally, <laughs> no, this is perfect because this this leads us to a very weird very weird cultural rabbit hole in okay. a second. But okay. but to do the due diligence, as is our wanton warrant on this show, uh, we are going to uh we are going to proceed to uh demolish any illusions that some of us may still have about the reality depicted in reality television. As, as we said earlier, producers are the storytellers. I really love that phrase, the invisible hand of storytelling too, Matt. Producers might and by audio. Take visual clips, edit them out of context to get closer to a desired narrative. A good example of this, off the top of my head, uh, if you are a producer on a show and you want two of the uh, cast members on the show to fight, then maybe uh, you know these are not dumb people; they're they're pretty smart. Uh, so they may even like each other, and they don't want to seem like they're fighting. But all you have to do is take a clip of like, take a clip of uh, Matt and Noel on on a camping trip, and Matt saying, "Hey, is there uh, do we do we have any more coffee?" And then Noel goes, "Oh, uh, sorry, I, I didn't make any yet." And then just cut to uh, cut to a different clip. Like a, this is why there was always the stand-ups or the confessional parts cut to a different clip where um the producer is off screen asking Matt like so what do you think of Adolf Hitler and then Matt's like I think he's a terrible person right I think Adolf Hitler's a terrible terrible person and they're like could you say that but not say the name Adolf Hitler It's like oh yeah I hate him I think he's a monster and then in the post production in the editing it goes straight from the clip of a very normal conversation about should we make coffee to Matt saying I hate him I think he's a monster and then and then they'll just Frankenbite some other clip of um of of Noel saying something again completely innocuous maybe they use the Hitler trick on him that I'm making that up but it is a very plausible thing and then maybe if they don't have to Frankenbite you guys if you're totally down to play ball and jump through those hoops, then they'll lean into it and say, okay, uh, we want you guys to really disagree about, I don't know, uh, about where a tent should be pitched. And then we go, okay, you know, and you guys have the argument about where the tent should be pitched. Like, that was great. That was great, guys. That was really honest. Um, We're going to reset couple of cameras uh, because we want to get a good over the shoulder on Matt. And then you'll just have the argument again, like those, some of those things you see that appear to be spontaneous organic disputes are like multiple iterative takes.
0: Oh, absolutely. And like I was saying with the the pilot that Paul and I worked on, the producers will actively do things to, to game the system, like sending those packages, you know, to this uh, potentially braggadocious, uh, you know, cast member who in, in an effort to like get the other women to be annoyed with her being all, look at me, my boyfriend sending me all these amazing gifts. Oh, he loves me so much. And then they have like, like, so what do you think about Anya? Like, she's a little much, huh? Oh my God. Yes. Anya is the worst. You know, she had, she sent those to herself. You know that she did that just to like, you know, be the center of attention. Right. And then, you know, yeah, And then they ask Anya, what do you think? Well, I don't understand why the other girls are so mean to me. You know, I just am just so beautiful and my boyfriend just loves me. What's wrong with that, you know? And then it all comes to a head. And even that's manufactured because they literally have each other talking trash about each other behind their backs and they're poking the bear, essentially, and creating this situation where there's this, like, explosion moment. And then they capture that, too. (laughs) And then they potentially do that from other uh, angles, you know,
1: it's, 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 it's pretty wild. Let me play this clip of what Anya said for you, and I'd like you to react to it.
2: Exactly. Or even if you're in one of those confessional booths with a big bright light in front of you and there's a producer in your ear just saying, you know, we captured some pretty disturbing stuff earlier um, that was said about you, and we'd just love to know what you think about this. And that's all you have to do.
1: Because so, I'm, I'm on your side. Yeah, well, I yeah. want to hear your side of this. Uh, there's, you know, a personal example too. Is uh, often things will get phrased as questions. That's one. That's one big part of interrogation and psychosocial manipulation, right? You don't. You don't have to tell people what to say. You ask people a question and then frame it in such a way that you're trying to get them to say what you want. Them to say as though it were their idea. So, for instance, if you're on a pilot about uh, hunting for some uh, fictitious lost silver mine in the App- in, in the Appalachian Forest, and someone says, "You know, I heard that there was a lost silver mine, and I you I heard that there were even statues there." Hidden that might have some Mayan influence. Yeah, what do you think about that? And like, well, it's the first time I've heard it, and I don't think it's true. Oh, and if you could please
0: rephrase my question in your answer, please rephrase my question in your answer. By the way, but
1: what if it? But what if that happens too? But what I'm talking about is like they'll go. But what if it was? Could you just repeat the question? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is why, like, which is why you'll see people who are you know um, incredibly reputable scientists. Who are top notch, right? And they'll they'll uh, they'll come off looking like they believe wholeheartedly in ancient aliens or something like that. And a lot of those scientists are very uh, upset, at, you know, when they, when they see the end result because they've been told just to say, uh, just like read these questions, and they'll read five questions, and one of them is the one that the showrunner is aiming to use, right? Well, and, and the reason I bring up the whole
0: please rephrase my question in your response A, it's a good technique so that you can cut out the interviewer's voice so that you have a self-contained soundbite. But it also kind of primes the pump for whatever, for getting that person to talk about what you want them to talk about. So you ask them this question, and then they literally have to kind of frame their entire answer around incorporating that question into their response, thereby making that sort of the locus of control for the whole the whole. Shebang, where like it starts from okay, I have to like answer maybe it's a leading question, it usually is, and then you're playing totally playing ball by making that question part of your answer when maybe it was a question that it was phrased in a divisive way or in a leading way or in some way, kind of like you know, um, misleading. Uh, this is the way I think about it, guys. So, um, uh, uh,
2: most of us out there have seen or know what a script is, right? We understand that it's a series of words on a lot of paper that tells usually a camera and actors what to do. That's generally it. What's going to happen on set. The way I think about reality TV is that you don't have a script at all until you've got all or most of your stuff shot. And then you form that script backwards, basically, from what you know, you what you want to happen. And then everything else you kind of plot in with footage that you've collected, right? And there's going to be holes in there that I need to get from point A to point B somehow. Now I need to get this person or somebody else to say this very specific thing. And they use the technique Ben is talking about where they will just try and seed you with something uh, as the actor or character or try and psychologically manipulate it out of you in some way. (laughs)
1: And for many people, this can feel like a big break, you know, so we're incentivized to play ball. But but okay. so we we've proven that this stuff happens. Producers also, by the way, are known for breaking various rules off camera. You're in a survival show, right? There's one where it's like literally people are supposed to be running around naked, surviving in the wild, (laughs) uh, but off off air, they're supplied with medicine, they're supplied with food, and things like that when the cameras aren't rolling. So yes, there are many, 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 many instances of what could be called active conspiracies on the sets of many reality TV shows. That doesn't make them bad, again, because hey, if it's an open secret, and people still dig it, and no one is getting hurt, and no big whoop, right? Uh where where's where where's the beef? Where's the impossible burger in that one? But it turns out, because remember, folks, we said that's not the big twist here. Everybody knows that reality TV itself is it got a more than a bit of kayfabe to it, as they say in wrestling. Economic factors are at play in a very very big way here uh one one thing is interesting you guys remember the writer's strike 2007 2008
2: of course very much especially with regularly occurring shows uh, late night shows talk shows i remember that being a major issue yeah wow uh, everything from the daily show to conan to to all of those gave was us to
1: horrible that mm-hmm. was cool. I still love that one. Uh, yeah, it hamstrung uh, broadcasting cable networks and. Remember, this is a billion-dollar industry. They're scrambling desperately uh, to find any original content to fill that programming schedule. These are not the days of early television. You can't just say, "Well, it's ten p.m., so we're signing off." Here's our, you know, here's a, here's a holding pattern screen. So, as an end result of that. When they couldn't get the scripted shows running, right? How I Met Your Mother, etc. All the mainstays. Uh, more than one hundred unscripted shows, competitions, dating games, life improvement stuff. Uh, more than one hundred either debuted or returned in a single season. And I was looking into uh, the boots on the ground for this from both people who are. Uh, established industry insiders and then people who are kind of like pop culture pundits observing this. And they said they don't all agree on how much impact the writer's strike actually had on the explosion of reality TV since it was already well underway. Uh, But now they said it was something that can no longer be dismissed as a trend or a fad. From that point forward, reality programs began to top the ratings week after week after week and it was so good for the bottom line this is something that we have run into even in our own little uh our own little domain of media unscripted television is much
0: much cheaper right because you don't need a writer you don't need a set Barely. I mean, if you're doing a game show, I guess, but that that's a little bit of a conversation for a different day. Um, you just need a handful of producers or handlers. Uh, you wouldn't even really call them a director. Most of the time, I think they're just producers who are kind of like, you know, you've got a camera crew and people that are making sure to get the coverage. And you probably have a director of photography that's just assuring that they capture as much as humanly possible. But so many of these shows, too, like use things like GoPros or use like even iPhone footage, you know? I mean, it's that you don't need a massive, glitzy production with tons of lighting. You can use a skeleton crew and you're just setting up and picking up in some very, like, maybe there's a a whole show that takes place definitely there is in the house like a big brother situation where it's just lots of little cheapy GoPro cameras mounted everywhere in those confessional booths or what have you it's all really really affordable and think
2: about something as simple as set dressing in in a place so in a reality show this person you may enhance the reality of what exists in their room Right? Be to make that character seem more oh, they really like baseball. But in a in a film or a tele a scripted television series, you have to very specifically place things that are going to tell you about the arc of that character. And the money that you spend on just stuff for set dressing is insane. And the people you have to pay to make sure all of that stuff gets in the right place and is in the right spot every time you roll a camera um, th- and that's like a this tiniest sliver of expenses that you're saving when you make unscripted
1: and, and Matt is uh I, I hope you don't get mad at me for disclosing this man but uh Matt, I can tell you're still a little bit bitter about the uh set design costs that sank uh, that sank your historically accurate uh period piece. Series right on uh, what was that again? What what time period was that?
2: My historically accurate period, accurate period piece project. Uh, oh man, improv, improv, uh, yes, and yes, and <laughs> oh, it, it was. Mm, I got nothing, guys. No way, okay. uh, <laughs> I've kind of got, got something like this going on behind me right now. If you can see this video. Uh, I am ridiculously delayed right now in our Zoom call, by the way, and it is weirding me out. But I've set-dressed the everything that's behind me to be Matt. Like, this is Matt, the character, represented in things behind me. And it's what you would do for either production, scripted or unscripted. But I guess the stakes of it for unscripted are so... Smaller. I don't know where I'm going with this guy.
1: Yeah, I I totally, I, I totally improv rules threw you under the bus. I apologize, (laughs) Uh, but, um, but, uh, but I just, I love the idea of you having, uh, like this, mostly in the can, sweeping historical epic. And then like the, the breaking point for the budget was making sure you had historically accurate, you know, like carriages or something. (laughs) Uh, But, but that happens, you know, and it, it is, you're right. There are so many expenses that come into play. Like, uh, According to E Online and according to History Channel, a thirty minute episode of your average reality TV show costs somewhere between a hundred grand to five hundred grand to produce. That's a huge amount of money for individuals. But in the world of television, it's not very much money at all. That's a steal. That's a fire sale. Because if you look at the other side of the spectrum, uh, think about what we call prestige television, right? Breaking Bad, Sopranos, etc. The last season of Game of Thrones, despite being enormously divisive, uh, keeping my personal opinions out here, uh, each episode of that last season, cost $15 million. Think of how much reality TV you can make with fifteen mil.
2: Oh, my God. So many fewer people. No sets. You don't have to be in the winter. Winter is not coming in your reality show, unless you're the Ice Road Truckers. It's already come. It's too
1: late. <laughs> right, right. And in Ice Road Truckers, I think they have their own trucks, so you don't have to pay for those either. Uh, This means that there's inherently going to be more risk in making any kind of scripted show because a huge budget doesn't always translate to huge ratings, doesn't always translate to commercial success. You could spend millions of dollars. Per episode on a season of something, and critics could pan it and it, you know, like it would be the worst move of your career. So why write a stunning fantasy? Why produce this historically accurate sweeping thing when you could just churn and burn unscripted material across all these different sub-genres? I, I mean, the the weird thing is, for a while, production houses were creating scripted television and it was very expensive to create it. And they were also regularly losing in their ratings to reality TV. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, we run into that a lot in podcast world and a lot of big television production companies are seeing that as an opportunity as well, where it's all about the intellectual property wars, where it's like people want to develop things for as cheaply as possible and test out intellectual property. And we see that happening with shows like Homecoming that started off as a podcast, did moderately well as a podcast, and then since they knew there was an interest it's almost like a pretty cheap focus group version of a more expensive thing then they they sold it as a television show and and it did very well and now it's got multiple seasons and it's on streaming and it's an interesting whirl with the media landscape especially now guys with covid and, and movie theaters Essentially being like on the brink Of annihilation like we saw that Movie Tenet come out and, and did like Well I think 30 million dollars Total over like two weeks Which and it cost like hundreds Of millions of dollars and this it just it Does not bode well for the industry So they're gonna I wonder if we're gonna see more Of this kind of stuff or more Things as podcasts where it's All about how quickly and cheaply can you Make it um, while You know still presenting an appearance of quality or integrity or, or what have you.
2: Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. The money, the actual ticket price, right? Really quickly here. History Channel, uh, or you know, history. Excuse me, history. They would budget two hundred twenty five thousand to four hundred twenty five thousand per episode for an unscripted show. Uh, just and they make a lot of them, and they have historically <laughs> made a lot of them, and and they air some of the highest rated shows in America. Their show Pawn Stars that we talked about, uh, we mentioned at least in passing at the top of the show, where it's literally a pawn shop. What happens that's exciting in this pawn shop? Well, you got to tune in to find out. That was beating Mad Men. One of the most lauded shows to come around in a long time. It was beating that, Pawn, Pawn Stars was beating Mad Men in ratings on Sunday nights when they were both airing at the same time.
1: And it was infinitely cheaper Oh, you know yeah. the the um, the profit margins are much higher because the production costs are much lower. The people that would be the talent, right, the principal cast of something like Pawn uh, Pawn Stars or something like um, American Pickers or something, they tend to make much much less than actors in a scripted series. We've all heard stories about a successful sitcom and uh, how much money each actor makes per episode. Also, the scripting. We talked about this a little. The scripting that does occur is kind of like um, a, a long-form, semi-improvised thing. There are beats to this story. There's a narrative spine, and that falls on the producers. The producers are not considered writers. They are not represented by a writer's union. That also lowers the cost. Those two factors alone mean the profit margin on a reality TV production can go as high as 40%. Like, back in its, back in its glory days— American Idol was making, was generating $96 million in revenue. That gave it a gross profit margin of 77%. And that's just based on the ad dollars. That doesn't count that DVD sales back in the days of physical media were a huge income stream. People were buying, you know, the Real Housewives of Insert City here. And they were buying it on DVD or Blu-ray and they were keeping it. They were giving it as a gift to friends and so on. Product placement, super easy, you know, because I'm like excited to, uh, to work with Sean Puffy Combs and I really need to get, uh, I need to get my, my verse in and nothing charges me up like a monster energy, you know?
0: Well yeah, and, and Matt, to your point about set dressing, I almost would say more attention on reality TV show in terms of set dressing goes into making sure those brands are visible in the background or that something's placed on a kitchen table or seen prominently in the fridge, you know, or whatever it is. Like that's the kind of set dressing because it's all about maximizing those dollars and, and, and making sure that no, it doesn't matter if oh this tells a story about a person or an arc. It's can you see the box of Flamin' Hot Cheetos? They don't come in boxes.
1: They come in bags. But you get what I'm saying. And one other piece of uh, revenue for any reality TV show is actually licensing. If I've got a show like The Bachelor, let me – I could republish The Bachelor all the live long day in another country. But why don't I just sell a license, have someone else make their own version of The Bachelor, and just wait by the mailbox for the check? That's something else that happens too. And so every
2: we, country has an idol.
1: Right, right. So we have two we have we have two twists there. Uh first that reality shows are so profitable because they are so uh comparatively they're so uh so cheap to produce, right? Uh and then we know that it is in fact a very for being diplomatic, a very guided version of reality at the very least. But those aren't the twists that should bother you. That shouldn't be what haunts you the next time you watch reality television. There should be something that haunts you. We'll tell you what it is after a word from our sponsor. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
0: I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This Chumba
2: Chumbacasino.com No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post
0: is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we
1: always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. So the final twist is what we could perhaps call cultural danger. Uh, This reminds me a lot of We've seen it depicted in fiction as well in the film adaptation of The Hunger Games. There is a uh, American Idol-esque reality show component to the, uh, to the death matches that these children are forced to fight in. And this didn't come from, you know, just the mind of the author. Over at The New Yorker, a writer and journalist named Khalifa Sana outlined some of the less obvious dangers of the cultural impact and enormous influence wielded by reality TV. Anthropologists have been looking at the concept of reality TV since as far back as the 1970s. In 1973, anthropologist Margaret Mead wrote an essay that was kind of uh, under the radar, published in TV Guide, where she expounded on the impact of this new genre. She said it was a new kind of art form, as significant as the invention of the drama or the novel. There's another author, Jennifer L. Posner, wrote a book called Reality Bites Back: The Troubling Truth About Guilty Pleasure TV and she notes that a lot of these shows whether by design or by accident a lot of these shows end up reinforcing what are seen as cultural or social norms it's education as well as entertainment when you when you watch these shows and you react when we when we react as Though we are scandalized by something, or we are touched, or we are saddened, what we are reacting to is the depiction of a cultural norm, or what someone wants to be a cultural norm, that is foisted upon us as the viewer.
2: Or we're, we're rooting for someone to meet cultural norms, and to be like us, one of us.
1: Or to, you know, to, to yeah, to conform really. Mm-hmm. What we're learning is conformity. It is an education as much as it's entertainment, but it's not sold as such. And that's, that's a secret that people don't talk about as often as they should. In some cases, this stuff is straight-up propaganda. Think about it. A show about losing weight reinforces the concept of what is or is not considered an acceptable or ideal body image. Shows about finding love have this heavy implication that people cannot be happy by themselves themselves that to be a full member of society one must participate in rituals like marriage makeover shows skirt the line of ridiculing people for you know being themselves you know, they they want us to uh they want us as the audience to agree that yes these wretched souls are are, are just not good enough so think God and thank the network that someone is here to correct that misconception for my personal amusement. I mean, think about the racial stereotypes that proliferate through a lot of these things, a lot of matchmaking shows, too. Uh, there are like, there are um, numerous contestants, multiple shows have alleged serious discrimination based on race.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and just something to think about here in any thing you're watching on television, There is always subtext to what is occurring at all times. Actions that are taking place, character representations, even if they are reality, the way they're represented, there's subtext to that. There's stuff that is not said. It's not on the page written down, but it has meaning. There's a reasoning that you come to, whether consciously or subconsciously, about these things. And it's no different in something like The Sopranos versus... Something like Honey Boo Boo. There's subtext in there that maybe you're not necessarily grasping in that moment, like Ben just described a lot of various ones. But yeah, there's there's some, there's some pretty bad stuff that's been alleged here. Just I just want to put the subtext angle in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, consider also there's a transactional angle to a lot of this. Humiliate yourself. For In front of millions of strangers, for the chance at somehow in some way having a better life. Those contestants on Queen for a Day, right, or or thousands of reality TV show contestants over the intervening decades, they're forced to undergo various forms of degradation, emotional trauma, or at least the appearance of it, for the passive amusement of strangers.
2: Fear factor.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eat bugs. Why go to college? Sure.
0: Yeah, goat penis, whatever. Yeah, but I mean, uh, it it is kind of the modern equivalent of like bread and circuses, like the, you know, gladiator battles. Like it's people, it's, it's literally, it's weaponized Schadenfreude where we, it's so popular because it makes people feel better about themselves to watch people they perceive as lesser than them humiliating themselves on public television. Like, look at that idiot. At least I'm not that stupid or at least I'm not that poor. Or at least I'm not that desperate, or whatever. It's 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 weaponizing this impulse in human
1: beings that is very nasty. Agreed. I mean, think about too. (laughs) I I don't want to be a stand and deliver character going these kids, but (laughs) think about it. Uh, Reality television can make this profound impact on the mind of younger viewers, especially. Are we, for instance, teaching? human beings uh, to dehumanize other folks just because you see them on a screen? Are we teaching audiences to prize competition over collaboration, to value image and appearance over merit and ability? Are we, as is so often alleged, dumbing down our species? Because I can guarantee you a lot of, I I don't know about you guys, but a lot of my friends who don't live in the U.S. immediately think of the worst of reality television when they think of the average U.S. resident. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, hey, just on that on that competition angle, the only the only extra thing I would put in there is that some British competition shows, such as the Great British Baking Show, love, do actually love, love. foster the collaborative effort thing, yes. kindness,
0: yeah. gentleness, helping your fellow human beings. I love it. Great mm. British Bake Off show is the b- b- baking show is the best.
2: Yeah and that one small thing makes it a completely different experience and the takeaway the emotional takeaway from the show is is massively varied from something you'd get where you know it's one one takes all and and just because it's one takes all we all have to be uh, at each other's backs with knives
0: and there's still a winner the, the Great British Baking Show has a winner, but at the end, all of the other competitors come back and they have a picnic on the heath, you know, <laughs> where the tent was was uh, pitched, where they do the tent, you know, that, that's what the whole thing takes place inside this massive tent, and everyone says how much they love that person, how much they're so happy for them, and they deserve it, and you know, I wish it would have been me, but if it wasn't going to be me, I'm glad it was... Whomever, there's this genuine, exactly, yeah, there's this genuine um, sense of uh, of love in that show, and I'm sorry, I'm gushing about great because it's it's coming back by the way. There's a new season, I think, starting this Friday or today. Uh, which we record this uh, this episode. This whole so,
2: thing has been a plug for the great British baking show.
1: <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I really appreciate you bringing up that point, Matt, because there's there's another example that's also in the world of reality TV cooking that I love to point to when people ask about the power of producers. And that is watch, watch Gordon Ramsay in a U.S.-produced cooking show. Watch his behavior. Watch the character he portrays. And then oh, watch man. him on a British show. Where he's much uh much less uh, abrasive, right, well,
0: unless it's kitchen nightmares, which was a British show to start, and he is yelling at these people, but they all deserve it because they're detestable mm, people uh, and
1: then, uh, <laughs> kitchen
2: kitchen nightmares i I don't know if there's british and u s versions, I think there is, but no there is the I'm british probably... one he he is helping people, it
0: seemed like. But he still shames them to to make them realize the error of their
2: ways. But I'm telling you, the character that he plays is different vastly different I'll tell you yeah
0: you you're, you, you've, you very well may be right, but i I do remember having BBC America uh, back when I had cable back in the day and got obsessed with kitchen nightmares and it was definitely the British version and he he, he maybe wasn't quite as over the top of a caricature of himself, but he was still very no nonsense and doesn't take any crap and and would put people in their places very very quickly
1: yeah my my argument is that that becomes radicalized or um, yes. Accelerated, exacerbated in the U.S. productions, but uh, but I think you know what we're skirting around here is uh, the hill that I've chosen to die on, which is the original Iron Chef is awesome. I don't care if it's fake.
2: Uh, hands down, you are correct, sir. <laughs> did we
0: talk about the fact that the guy that plays the chairman in the American Iron Chef was in the Double Dragon movie? I swear to God, I didn't know that. He claims to be the descendant of the original chairman. I didn't know any of that was fake. And we did. Isn't
2: that the, wasn't that in the Dan show? The Dan Harmon show? I oh, can't must, re- maybe I so. I like maybe,
0: maybe so. Yeah, but
1: had no idea. I was fooled. There's uh, an honorable mention to the uh, very brief uh, original US reboot, which had William Shatner as the chairman uh, <laughs> and added Iron Chef America. Oh, I've got to watch that. Anyway, if you're bored on YouTube, check it out. Tell him Benson to. Uh, so let's think about this idea of the competition. There's stuff to unpack here. So reality television promotes this belief. That competition is the key to success, and in doing so, it's it's kind of pre-programming some assumptions of capitalist economy. I'm not saying that that stuff is inherently evil, but I'm saying subliminally. Seeding people with that, incepting them, especially when they're at a young age, is maybe not the most uh, – well, it's definitely not the most ethical thing, right? Uh, it, and whether we're talking about it's uh, a survivor winning millions of dollars uh, or someone on who wants to marry a multimillionaire or whatever uh, getting a husband, the, these TV shows reinforce the idea that your life as well is only a competition, like you said, Matt. People can only succeed by stabbing one another in the back. And look, we have, you know, uh, we we have a uh, all worked in a corporate structure before. We know that um, we know that to a degree it rewards betrayal and it rewards people being horrible people. Uh, but that doesn't mean there's not an alternative. The I think the biggest thing and the most damaging thing for a lot of children watching is this implicit argument that an image is more important than skill, right? That you don't, like, you don't have to bother uh, doing the work. You don't have to bother practicing. You don't have to bother getting expertise. You just need uh, someone else to take care of that backstage, and then you can reap the rewards. That's why a contestant with, like, a cool backstory or a quote-unquote personality, they do or say controversial stuff, They'll often win at least a certain level of a competition over someone who might be like a better singer. But they're just, they're, they're just like, you know, regular Jane or John uh, last name. and they have a beautiful voice, but they don't have they don't have that, that sizzle. They don't have something for the audience to aspire toward or look down upon. They're too normal. And this, I, I think that's one of the biggest dangers of reality TV because calling it that, like, think about how powerful the language is. Calling this reality TV does not just mislead viewers to assume what they're seeing is real. It also pulls a bait-and-switch, and a brilliant, evil bait-and-switch. Calling this stuff sugge- reality suggests that we as the creators are showing you society. What's that old argument? We're holding up a mirror. We're just we're replicating what's happening now. But are they really? Are they showing us a real society? Or are they showing you what people in power want you to think society should be like? Are they telling you how they are comfortable with society working? Compete. Don't collaborate.
3: Well,
0: or or not only that, but it's also putting forth all of these very surfacey, commercial kind of ideals and these aspirational in terms of like, I want to have that million dollar home. I want to have these products. I want to live this lifestyle. And it's something that forces people to maybe spend money on Gucci belt bags they can't really afford because they want to look like a Kardashian. You know, it, it, it it is in the best interest of the economy and of those in power making lots of Money for these shows to promote those kind of ideals, and not this—the the ones that the British shows promote about helping your neighbor and collaborating and working together to make a society better for everyone. Because there are people with a vested
1: interest in society not being better for everyone. Compete, don't collaborate. Uh, appear. To be like the way you look is more important than who you are, and people who have talent uh, are irrelevant unless they look good doing it. I, this is this is very dangerous stuff.
2: Well, and that dovetails right into two things that I just want to talk about. We're talking about this being a cultural danger. I think this is more of a personal danger because, and this is just my opinion. I think reality television normalized the concept of needing a camera for mundane things to be recorded, which then went directly into social media, uh, which then mm-hmm. created within ourselves, each of us, the belief that it is worth taking a picture of the food you're about to take and then sharing it with everyone and, and placing your hopes on. On the the possibility that somebody else might tell you that that was a great thing.
0: Well, social media just made us all reality stars, made uh, our, in our own minds, yeah. in our own
1: minds, Matt. You uh, know what I mean? That was my big, yeah, that was my big end review. I'm glad we're on the oh. same page. That's oh, what yeah, happened. I'm sorry. No, I no, didn't you're mean right. That that's away. what happened. No, no, you're right. That's the big. um God, I no, I would hate to feel like. We're doing anything other than collaborating. Like this is that's that's the big point, you know, because reality TV, when it began, began when cameras were more expensive, right? And the average person probably wouldn't afford, uh, wouldn't be able to afford a, a camera that could film moving pictures. And and now everyone is uh, is told you should be a reality. TV star, like you should be, quote unquote, on camera or on air all the time. This goes into the social dilemma, uh, the stuff that documentary explores, the dopamine rush, the newer neurochemistry at play. But, you know, very soon, I mean, we're, we're already past the point, right, of no return. Uh, very soon, it is going to be uncommon For someone growing up in the age of information flood and ubiquitous media to not have some kind of nearly 24 7 data stream information about them. And then it'll become uh, recursive. Increasingly, the concept of perception and creation and what is or is not the real uh, becomes an argument, it becomes a metaphor of two mirrors. Facing each other with nothing between them, reflecting only themselves into infinity. And that's, I don't know about you, that's not a world I want to live in.
2: No, no thank you. No thank you. That's infinite, Black Mirror, and that sounds awful. Uh, it's, the, it's, the
1: same, it's the same as
0: the echo chamber effect we talked about, uh, on a recent news episode, when we're talking about, uh, Facebook and polarization of people's opinions, because we're all just looking at ourselves. We're not looking at others. We're not listening to other perspectives. We're so self-centered, uh, both ideologically and uh, aesthetically that we just, who cares what anyone else, I mean, but we do look at others, but we only look at it through the mirror and the lens of ourselves and, uh, uh, why am I not that pretty? Why am I not that, um, you know, rich or whatever? We're not thinking about those people as people. They just represent something that we want for ourselves.
2: Well, I, I think in the end, it's it's an insidious thing, but I don't think it's – I I personally don't think it's like they, some specific they that wants us to be this way besides – just overall consumerism and and large um maybe it is just capitalism with a giant C that anyone who benefits from selling goods and services um and you know massive global economies. Maybe it's just the global economy that we could blame for it. Where where they need they need us to be thinking about things and stuff that we can buy. And when we're sharing all that stuff, it's no it, it's no secret that There are ads. If you're scrolling through Instagram or whatever you're using, there's an ad every three or four spaces that you're scrolling past, and that is very. I mean, there's a reason for that, and it's because you're consuming and consuming and consuming. And there's another thing that you can consume, and it's so easy—you just click on it. And I think the real danger here—it's there's a the common phrase of dumbing down society, right? That we and that is to an extent correct, but I think. The biggest thing is that it's decreasing mindfulness and self-awareness and 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 the awareness of others. It's kind of what you're hitting on there guys It's just I think that's the danger and that's the real insidious thing and a lot of the people that are creating this stuff, the reality television and all these things that come together, they don't even realize that they're working you know towards that end goal. they're just as we outlined earlier, they're doing all of these they're doing it for all the reasons that we
1: outlined. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's the. it's not look, it's not like it's not as if there is some sort of shadowy cabal of people who secretly through a series of front organizations own the entirety of media and want everybody to turn into an increasingly your person. It's it's instead it's a matter of. How much profit can we make? How quickly can we make it consequences be damned? And that's like that's uh, I, I know that's maybe a harsh a, a harsh way to say it, but it also we have to be we have to be very clear with this. We're not saying that the people who are making reality TV or participating in it are somehow across the board, terrible, terrible people. Uh, we're also we're also not accusing anybody in the production of reality TV of being some super brilliant evil mastermind, purposefully uh, driving us away from the contemplation of reality off the screen. Uh, we're saying that's what happened. This is again, 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 again. This is Mickey Mouse Sorcerer's Apprentice. Fantasia, we automated some brooms, the brooms automated more brooms, and now the house is flooding. And there is not an easy way back. That is just clear. But but there are also maybe positive impacts of reality TV. People really do win millions of dollars. People maybe have really found genuine romantic love. Uh, People's lives may have been changed for the better. But, I mean, what do you think? Like, I I was thinking of positive examples, and I can only, they're outweighed by the negatives.
2: I am now aware of what an ice road trucker is, okay? I didn't know that was a potential job route for anybody, but now I know it's there.
0: There are also shows like Queer Eye, for example, like, that is a very important way of I don't know, normalizing uh, a lifestyle and a in a, a type of people that some people in Middle America never see, or it's some representation. people representation exactly, and I think that's important. And Queer Eye, especially the new season, is much more like that Great British Baking Show style of programming, where they're here to help people. They are very; it's all about inclusivity and about making people feel good about themselves and empowering people. You know, um, but again, it's also it really is important in, in its representation of the, uh, the the gay and queer community uh, in places that just don't see that and maybe have a negative uh, idea of what that means and this can kind of normalize that in a very important way um, and also it's something that kids grow up seeing and it makes them feel if they end up deciding that that's how they feel in terms of their how they identify it gives them something that they've seen since they were little that lets them know that they're you know not alone no one has to struggle with those kinds of things anymore the idea of coming out because you have all these stories on on shows like that uh, so I think that's that's a that's a positive
1: agreed so the question we end on today is uh we we've outlined the the dangers the potential the trends the history the present the past, and the future and what we think about it but as always the most important part is to hear what you think about it specifically. You. What are the positive impacts of reality TV? Are they outweighed by the negative? What do you What do you feel when you are watching these? What reactions are uh, inspired in your mind? What do you think the future of reality television will be? uh just speaking for myself here i i'd love to hear your take i i also want to know if we're going to live in a dystopian world where uh having a 24/7 stream somehow curated of your life is as important as having a social security number or something like i i think we're we're already curating our lives through social media right in one degree or another we're all becoming a brand so tell us how far you think it'll go. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we're, <laughs> you can find us on our social media sites, right? Uh, we recommend Here's Where It Gets Crazy. If you're still on Facebook, uh, you can see our favorite part of the show, our fellow listeners. Uh, you can also find us, if you wish, as individuals.
0: Yeah, I'm on Instagram at how now Noel Brown. I am Matt Frederick
1: underscore iHeart. You can find me uh, at Ben Bullen HSW on Twitter. You can also find me at Ben Bullen uh, on Instagram. And if you think social media is not your like cup of hammers or your bag of badgers, I don't know what a cup How of hammer is. How many hammers can you fit in a cup, Ben? It depends That's on the size of the cup. <laughs> That's yeah. Fair. Uh, it's the then, handle.
2: It's really the handle.
1: <laughs> the, the, uh, we have a way for you to contact us via telephone.
2: That's right. Our number is 1 833. S-T-D-W-Y-T-K, leave a message, talk to us, anything you want to say, all your thoughts on this episode or anything else, just to put it on that line there, you get three minutes. And let us know if you want to be on air or not, or you want us to use your name, little things
0: like that, that's helpful for us. Otherwise, we just say anonymous person called. Something just flooded back to my memory when, when I heard you say that I had a dream last night That we were all in the same room together Recording an episode for the first time And it was very important That we said that phone number together For the first time And we talked about how uh, cathartic that was going to be um, it's, the, it's a spell yeah. That we will cast again someday soon Agreed And if you don't want to do any of that stuff And you want to just get in touch with us the old fashioned way Why not just send us a good old email We are Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com
2: Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is a production of iHeartRadio. Zumo Play.